This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone. I'm John. And this is Stephanie. And welcome to Borrowing Brilliance, a new segment of Dragon Mind. In this segment, we borrow brilliance from some of the world's most insightful minds using their ideas to better ourselves as game masters, players, and people. In today's episode, Stephanie and I discuss playtesting, how a playtest is likely to feel different than a regular session, and defining what makes a playtest successful. If you have any insights or questions, be sure to head over to the Darkmore Podcast community Discord and let us know in the proper channels. To support this podcast, make sure to drop a review in your podcasting app of choice to let us know your favorite thing about Dragon Mind. And check out the new Dragon Mind Mindful TTRPG's YouTube channel. So without further ado, let's get started. So today we are talking about playtesting because, man, there is a lot of playtesting going on. Not only do we have the one D&D playtest, which we might get into how it's not exactly an ideal playtest. <laughs> We've got uh, Black Flag, also known as Tales of the Valiant. Um, MCDM is coming out with their own system. There's just ever since the OGL scare, everybody wants to kind of create their own thing. Um, we even have friends that are testing out uh, their own systems and doing some really interesting things. So as you're running play tests, either with maybe a system you're tinkering with, or maybe you're just trying out all sorts of new games, how to run a play test in a way that's going to be valuable. Because I think one of the things that we discovered while we were running our own play tests for the one D&D content is that it can be really easy to get distracted from why you're running a play test in the first place and miss out on gathering the information that's going to help you make a decision of whether or not the system or rule or whatever it is you're playtesting is actually going to work. Yeah, I think the biggest stumbling block with a playtest is that if you love TTRPGs, you fall into wanting to play the game of the TTRPG, but it, it's a different situation. You're running like a scientific experiment where you're testing out something specific. So you have to kind of control for those factors, which means you might not be able to go willy nilly in whatever direction that you want with the story. Uh, you may not be able to focus or spend as much time on uh, the role-playing and that type of stuff. You, you have to really focus in on what's important if you want to get the most out of it. Now, if you have a group of people that are excited to just, you know, break out the Doritos and Mountain Dew and spend an entire Sunday, you know, playing together and testing different stuff and taking your time with it, then maybe you have the time to do some of that extra stuff. Um, but we found one of the biggest stumbling blocks is that when we were trying to do it in a, a certain period of time, like three to five hours, somewhere in there, uh, if we if we let ourselves play like we usually play, we didn't get to test like we needed to test. They're two totally separate things um, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think one of the best testimonials for this is throughout the years, I've had different game masters 
try to pitch me different systems. And so I get some of my not as entrenched TTRPG friends together to test it out. And I usually know that we weren't really play testing when the feedback is it's just Dungeons and Dragons, like how the story went had nothing to really do with the mechanics that separated one system for another. So it's like, well, why would I play this other game instead of the game that I know? And I think that that's a question that a lot of very diverse TTRPG game masters want other people to like really get a taste for different games, but they're frustrated by the fact that people just keep coming to the one that they already know. That that drives me a little bit bonkers when it happens. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna have a minor rant for a second because I we we have run into that where people are really passionate about how their thing is new and different and exciting. And in their mind, it's very clear. The picture is very clear of how different it is. And for the person that's coming in blind, we only know what we know. So there's there's times where I've been in the position where I'm asking the question, oh, is it kind of like this from D&D? And they're like, no, it's totally different than that. And But I need a starting point. Like it can be totally different from that. And that's just this comparison that I have. So my experience is doing this, rolling the dice this way. Can you tell me how this is different and this and similar to what you're talking about doing in this other game? It's just a reference point because you can't, if you're, if you're trying to get, if you're trying to drive to Disney world, you can't just focus on how awesome Disney world is. You have to know where you're starting from. So where I'm starting from generally is a lot of experience with 5e and not a lot of experience in other things. So recognize and honor where I am and then show me all of the cool sightseeing stuff along the way to get to Disney World. And then I'll be excited about Disney World, but I can't be excited about Disney World when I'm stuck in, you know, the trees of Connecticut. We we gotta, I gotta know where I'm coming from first. So just, if someone's asking, and this is just general in life, if someone's asking for a comparison, that may just be the way that their brain works. So honor that and and use that as this launch point to create a conversation rather than just being like no it's nothing like that which does nothing to clarify the situation the thing that i come back to this is advice that i've heard you can um john fritz who you've mentioned as a mentor uh little changes make a big difference i honestly have kind of flags that pop up when someone's like no this is completely different than any system you've ever played and it's like you, but I don't need a completely different system. So a good example of that is uh, in the Lord of the Rings 5e version. They just added this little rule that you can't take long rests unless you're in like a settlement. So basically, unless you're in a safe town, you don't get all your spell slots back and all your hit points. You can't just decide to rest in the dungeon and have that happen. That's a little change that completely changes the balance of... 5e's base system and a lot of the assumptions and expectations players have of their choices so sometimes the the point of playtesting isn't necessarily a whole new system and in fact if it's completely different there's only so many ways you can roll dice like like roll a dice compare it to a target number whether it's high or low or whatever and then narrate a result that's the base mechanic of all ttrpgs i know of and if there are exceptions to that rule please let me know 
But when someone's trying to tell me it's completely different, is it or are they just trying to justify it to themselves? I just I don't I, I think I know where they're coming from, but I agree with you. It can be very frustrating because then you feel like you're not able to make any choices because you don't know where you're at. Yeah, just to round out this rant that's slightly tangential. <laughs> um, but uh, there, there is nothing new that we've we've done it all as humans. Uh, we've we've said it all. We've seen it all. Every situation, every story has been told. It's just your unique spin, your unique voice that you're putting on it because you, it depends on how you think of it, but you've never been on this planet before in the combination of atoms that you are right now, at least depending on what your perspective is. The, the only unique thing is you, everything else. And I, I sometimes I run into this challenge building characters because I'm trying to come up with something that doesn't feel cliche, but really every story, it's like, you know, your character's parents being dead you know that's like a trope but it's a trope because it's interesting and it creates a compelling story and you know it serves a purpose so it's okay that there's nothing totally new and different and things can feel totally new and different even when they're not because of the people that you're playing with and the framework of the story but it's okay that we're scaffolding and iterating and evolving ideas that have been around yeah, I think I think we we hammered that. So John, if you had to sum it up, what is the point of a playtest? So in a TTRPG specific context, I find that the point of a playtest is to see how a slight change or a difference in mechanics leads to different story outcomes. So for example, I've played in systems where you create a character's story through rolling random events on a table and that engages the brain differently than just having say the D&D approach of just a species class and background so when you're play testing it's a mechanics thing because the story can be created in any way that you imagine it's that's what makes TTRPG so wonderful is that they're a human experience and that you have humans spontaneously creating things but the thing that helps players immerse and engage and all the wonderful things we want out of it end up being the mechanics or else we wouldn't be playing a game. We'd just be at a storytelling workshop or an improv acting uh, workshop. Because of that, a play test needs to be more mechanically minded. The story is important, but really what you're testing is how the mechanics help you tell that story. And you can you can test, you can choose to test story structure as well. Like you've played with and and found that you liked from experimentation, a three act story structure, creating a closed loop whenever you play a game. So that is something that you play tested and then decided to keep that was directly related to story. But at the same time, it's still a mechanical choice. You're creating a structure that isn't, you know, linked to the TTRPG rules, but it's kind of the the rules, it's the foundation, it's the structure of how you design a session. So whenever you're doing a play test, kind of like we already referenced the scientific method, you have to be clear on what you're play testing. What's the specific thing that you're looking to test and refine? And then focus on controlling for that specific mechanic 
make sure that that comes up, make sure that that's the focus, that the any combat creates the opportunities to see how that works in various situations. Um, like when you play tested facing rather than flanking, there was no story in that. We did not worry about it. We just jumped from fight to fight with different numbers uh, and skill level of combatants on the field. And we just saw how it worked. So there, there wasn't any focus on any of the other stuff that goes on. It was literally just scenarios that were specifically designed to test how we felt about facing, how well our party could pick up the idea of facing, because it could be a great idea. And if your players just aren't into it, that's part of what you're testing too, is which can make it kind of tricky because you can't, you know, this isn't a scientific experiment where we can control for every factor. So, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more about kind of prioritizing what you're looking to focus on. Um, but it's really, you, you got to pick something and then you have to discipline yourself to create scenarios that allow you to test that specific mechanic. And one of the outcomes that was interesting from the facing play test I think that these terms can all get kind of muddied. So when I say story, like it did help with the story, but not in the way that some people think of the story. So if you think of the story in terms of like your character's emotional development and their background and their physical description, we weren't worried about that. But there is a school of thought in game design about how mechanics tell a story. And I just remember with facing in particular, there was one 5e game we were both a part of. And you and I had tried to do this thing where we were fighting a worm monster. And I tried to distract the worm monster to get it to open its mouth so you could shoot inside of it. And what the game master said was, well, in this game, that doesn't really come into play. We roll the dice. It's a cool description, but there's no mechanics for that, which there were. It's facing in the dungeon master's guide. But what ended up happening when we started doing facing is we started to notice, oh, as a story description, I try to distract them by trying to run behind their back, which as martial artists, we know is one of the most vulnerable places that you can get to is, is the back. So it started to create cool mechanical strategies, but also descriptions that made sense that normally we would have no incentive to consider because again, quote unquote, it didn't matter. So I think when you're testing mechanics and you're thinking about stories and mechanics, you're right. Storytelling structure is a mechanic of writing. It is a rule or a procedure, which is how Jesse Shell, who is a great game designer, defines mechanics. I think that you just have to be very, very clear and do your best because again, people are variables to get everybody as clear as possible to figure out what are the things that we care about and what is going to distract from the things we care about? I think more so than controlling variables, it is controlling variables, but limiting the distractions that are going to muddy the information that we're trying to glean. So how do we get clear on the mechanics that we're testing? So I think first, the question to ask is how unfamiliar are the things that you're testing. So, you know, we go back to a game master being like, this is nothing like you've ever played. How you approach that kind of play test is going to be very different than what we were just talking about with facing, which is a system we're all highly familiar with. We're just adding 
one little optional rule and seeing in play the second, third, and fourth order consequences of the rest of the system. And if it's going to be a brand new system, like how we experienced Pathfinder, you just have to know there are other things that you're going to have to control for. So for example, I think the Pathfinder playtest would have gone better if I had handed everyone uh, pre-generated characters rather than trying to create our own characters. I think that in the starter set, there were not only pre-made character sheets, but like a page of instructions of how to play your character. And I think that would have smoothed out a lot of the rough spots that came out during that play test. I think to sum it up, you gotta you gotta get clear on what your goal is. So make sure that you can write it down in 10 words or less, probably less. So I am testing the Pathfinder system. I am testing facing in 5e. I am testing some other whole new system, fake core or whatever it is that you want to play. Then, then once you get clear on that, then you got to think about who is going to be the best people to invite for your play test. So when I was play testing, being a DM, which is kind of a play test in and of itself, I hadn't done that role before. I was testing how that felt for me. I started out by inviting my husband and my kid because I knew that they would be chill and they they had enough knowledge to support what I was doing, but not enough to rules layer me. And I knew they would be super supportive. So I, I picked people very deliberately about who I wanted to play test with. There's so people that were going to be open and that I could have honest conversation with, but would have my best interest, you know, at heart with what I was testing. And then you got to think about your priorities of what you want to test. So like what you were just talking about with Pathfinder, we tested a few too many things all at the same time because we were testing like character creation. We were putting a lot on all of the players to figure the system out. We were putting a lot on you as the DM. There were there were too many things being tested. So if we use pre-generated characters, we would have removed that element of it. And we could have focused on the gameplay rather than worrying about did we actually fill out our character sheets correctly, which some people ended up with gaps because we didn't know what we were doing and that bogged down the play test. So we could have controlled for that factor if we had prioritized, all right, we're just getting a feel for what this game is, just playing through the module that they give you in the little starter set. Um, so are you are you playtesting the people? Are you playtesting the system? Are you playtesting a specific mechanic? And there's probably going to be some sort of combination because like we said, this isn't a perfectly controlled scientific experiment, which means you're going to have a couple of factors. So you have to decide what the most important thing is. So like for our Pathfinder playtest, it was really playtesting how we all did with it. You know, how interested were we in diving into it? And there were varying levels of that. So because of this podcast and, you know, all the stuff that, that we talk about, I dove in and made 12 characters. <laughs> I made one of every class and then two of every lineage or whatever word they use in, in Pathfinder uh, because I really wanted to dive into understanding how it worked. Other people just weren't that into it and they they showed up with most of the work done but they were also kind of they just weren't as motivated to go and that's okay that's information that's good information to get if you're thinking about switching because there is a little 
question in the back of your mind about whether or not you wanted to switch over Gearus to Pathfinder. And th the answer was no, because it just, it, the play test really showed how ingrained we all were in 5e and the fact that even though there was a little bit of a, a hiccup for a while in the community with the whole OGL thing, uh, we, it, it came back around and it just, we're good where we are. You know, we know the 5e system, it would be more of a distraction than what we were looking for to, to try to switch systems. It would disrupt the culture that's been created and the magic that we have at this table. So why mess with that? And that's what we were playtesting. That was the highest priority that we had. And then, yes, we were testing out how Pathfinder's combat mechanics worked and all of those other little things they were in there. But we were, in hindsight, I think if you were to do it again, you would be clear that the first thing you were testing was just the vibe and the feel and the player reaction and the player commitment, you know, and going into it, that would be the thing that you prioritize the most. Cause at first you didn't like how it felt. It felt kind of like a flop and, and it was, but that was good information to get that told you everything that you needed to know. So now if you had been super invested in learning the mechanics of Pathfinder you would have been incredibly frustrated with how that went because we just didn't get that deep into it, you know, but because you were able to orient your perspective on what was important and what you were really testing in the end, it, it was a successful play test, even though it was a bit of a mess. That was the information we needed. It's so interesting how TTRPGs parallel martial arts, because in the martial arts community, sometimes you'll hear people squawk about this style is the best. It is number one superior. Nothing can defeat it. That kind of thing. And you hear that a lot from the TTRPG community too. Um, you know, my system is the best system. It does all these things really well. And if you don't like it, there's a problem with you, not a problem with my system. And I think that one of the benefits of playtesting is you really do get to figure out what system is the best fit. And Unfortunately, I think, hot take, what a lot of people don't want to hear that were very upset about the OGL thing and some other things that Wizards of the Coast have done is that their product is the best fit. <laughs> so, and it's a hard thing to do to be like, all right, even if this product is the best fit, do I not use it so that I don't somehow support the company that makes it? Or is there some other way I can reconcile it? The way I personally reconciled it for myself is I'm not giving them any more money. I have all the books I need already for to run a great 5e game, and I'm confident enough now to homebrew the stuff that I don't like that I don't feel like I need to pay them anymore. And also, according to them, they're going to release the new edition uh, into Creative Commons, which means unless I want to pay them for the 2024 core rulebooks, I can just look at what they've done with the uh, the Creative Commons one that they're releasing for free. I think what 5e gets right is it's kind of this not too tight, not too loose. And I think at this point, it's been established. Dungeons and Dragons has been established for so long. So many other systems build off of it and use components from it. I mean, even Pathfinder is like a an offshoot from Dungeons and Dragons. So it really is the foundation for everything else. So that's why it feels so comfortable because everything else is almost compared to it 
Um, and that that's what creates the space for so much creativity. Again, there's enough structure that there's banks to the river. It's not just a free for all, which we've, we've kind of experimented with games that were a little more like that. And it was confusing because there was, there was not enough rules. Like it was just a little too willy nilly how you figured stuff out. And then, you know, and then there's other games that are much more crunchy that are going to appeal to some different people, you know? So some people are going to like the crunchy. Some people are going to like the loosey goosey, but then you've got Dungeons and Dragons is that little Goldilocks spot in the middle, not too tight, not too loose, just right. Um, and I, I think that's why it has that plus its longevity uh, is why it has such staying power. Now, if you are going to try out a completely new system or even a system that might have roots in 5e, but change so much that it does have its own identity, I, I do think there are some things you can do. Yeah, the first thing you should do is go listen to the two episodes we did with Ken Caputo on the momentum learning system and the momentum teaching system. Because if you're doing a whole new system, you're teaching a lot. And it the system won't matter as much as your ability to communicate it to the people you're trying to teach. That's going to be a huge factor in the success of that playtest if it's a whole new system. So you got to think through how you're communicating, teaching, and sharing it to the people you're playing with. Of course, we talk about this actually in our martial arts school with leadership. To teach other people, you also have to get really good at teaching yourself. So ideally, I find if you're going to find a completely new system that you want to play test, if possible, be a player with a GM that knows this system first. For example, there were some things with 5e I had never even considered that when I was a player in the game and watched somebody else DM it, I all of a sudden a lot of light bulbs went off and I was like, oh, I get how this is supposed to resolve now. And I know that especially for small systems, it can be hard to find that. But if even if you can find like a YouTube video or a live stream of another group playing, that can be a good way to kind of absorb some of the little things going on. And as you're doing that, you have to kind of be watching for the game and then also recognize the skill level of the person that's sharing the information. So again, just because we see this in the martial arts a lot, you can have an amazing, you know, competition winning world champion martial artist does not mean they can teach doesn't doesn't not no relation between the two you can have someone who is an okay martial artist that's an amazing teacher and you can have someone that's an amazing martial artist that just has no idea how to communicate with other humans so like as you're if you go to a, a gm and you don't have the greatest experience you do have to kind of do some critical thinking on your own and be like okay was it the system or was it the person that just wasn't as skilled at explaining the system, you know? So kind of pay attention to the the little moments that grab you and, and whether or not those are there. Because again, maybe the experience, maybe you feel like you don't understand anything because it's not being explained to you well, but you're seeing some stuff that seems cool. And you want to know more about that, then follow that and try to find a different GM or find those YouTube videos, you know? So, so keep that open mind and be aware that you're basically, if you go into that scenario with a GM, you don't know playing a system, you don't know. Now you're playtesting two things at the same time. And you have to, as best you can try to discern 
the the two like differentiate the two and, and separate them another really good one actually this is when I actually felt like I understood Pathfinder and had a better grasp of its strengths and its flaws was just DMing myself. (laughs) So I have learned more about systems through solo GMing where it's just like I open up whatever the pre-scripted module is. I play all the party characters myself and kind of understand what I would do in a given situation. There is a little bit of a time commitment But again, the one thing you don't have to worry about is taking up the real world time of other players at the table. So if you're playtesting a completely new system, one of the things I found frustrating from our Pathfinder thing is I just couldn't find rules. The core rule book is like 500 pages long. And um, even the, the starter set, I was trying to find some specific action things that I could recommend to players and I just I could it took a while to find and it was frustrating because I knew that there was somebody else waiting for me there is that pressure so (laughs) when you're just GMing yourself you have all the time in the world to google answers or ask something on n world or just literally open up the book and look it up yourself so I do find that that solo play is a great way to learn a new system strengths and weaknesses yeah and that like basically like you said it gives you the time to do the work without worrying about the pressure of other people. You're also controlling for that human dynamic to some degree. Um, Now, obviously, your opinion isn't the only one that counts. So unless you're going to continue soloing, like if you had soloed Pathfinder and loved it and then just been like, we're switching, then that wouldn't have been really fair to all of us at the table. But I bet that playtest could have gone a little smoother and it wasn't a total disaster, but you know, there was some clunky bits and that play test could have gone a little bit faster. Had you had a little bit more experience on your own time. And there's, it doesn't matter. Like I read that entire book cover to cover for the most part, just not every detail of like every spell and everything, but I, I did, I, I was interested. So I read through the whole Pathfinder book that, that doesn't, solve everything you know that doesn't mean I memorized the thing so I read through it but that's very different like reading from cover to cover is very different than having to flip through it and find things uh, especially under a time crunch it's different than actually using it there's there's just a lot of a, a, a lot of dynamicness that happens during the game that you can't simulate if you're just studying the material you have to use the material so that's where the solo play testing can really help you even just understand how to flip your way through the book and find information faster. Yeah, I think overall to round out this section, you know, we've talked about controlling variables and kind of thinking more in like a scientific way. I think like the simplest mantra you can give yourself is to just start simple. (laughs) So and that's great advice for if you're a new GM, because like you said, like when you start game mastering, it's kind of a play test of figuring out if you like game mastering. If it's a new campaign, a new story arc, a new character, if you start simple, you can always build off of it. If your foundation is too complex and something goes wrong, it makes it that much harder to diagnose and fix. Yes. Keep it simple, stupid. All right. So we've talked about a bunch of examples, um, and now we're going to dive into a couple more um, ways that we've play tested uh, successfully and not successfully and kind of dissect what makes a good play test by talking about some real life examples. So we talked about the facing play test that we did, which I think was successful. You set it up in a way 
where we were very focused on this one mechanic. Everything pointed to that mechanic. We were able to play with it. Um, and it was, you know, you, it was designed appropriately for what we were trying to do. And you narrowed in on that one specific thing. There, there was another experience I had with playtesting that was the opposite of that. And I won't go into too much detail, but basically we're trying to playtest mechanics, but the bad guy we were fighting was too powerful. So my character went down and I didn't get to playtest anything because I was dead the whole time. Uh, so that's, you know, if you want to playtest combat mechanics, you might want to create a, uh, a bad guy that has, maybe is really beefy has a lot of hit points, so it extends the combat. They can't hit so hard that it knocks your players out because then they can't play test anything unless you are specifically testing a death mechanic, which I, I'm going to, we'll talk about that as we get to one of our examples because I was in a situation where the DM was specifically trying to kill us because the whole point was to test a death mechanic. So if that's the goal, then that's great. Then kill your players. It's fine. <laughs> you know, make them go down. Um, but if the goal is for them to test the actual like combat mechanics, make sure they stay on their feet. Otherwise they don't get to do anything. Yeah. This is a good point to reiterate that clearly communicate what you're play testing with your, your players. I think that a lot of game masters have an instinct to try to hide things and do a big twist. And when you're play testing, in order to glean information, you need to be clear about what it is you're play testing. So if I was just play testing a system and the GM threw an encounter that felt unfair and I got knocked out, but they were trying to test death mechanics, but I didn't know that, I wouldn't be okay with that. But if it was clear and upfront, like, hey, you're probably going to die because I'm play testing this specific thing that you can do while you're dying. Completely different frame of reference, even though the outcome is similar. And that's why the facing play test was so successful. Uh, it was because it was, you were clear on what we were testing out. You were like, hey, there's this alternate rule in the player's handbook it's a you know it's an alternative to to flanking i want to see how it works so we're gonna try it out there's gonna be no story it's just gonna be a series of combats you know then we're going to use this specific roll 20 mechanic to do it and you have to declare it at this time in your turn you know you were very very clear and upfront about what you're play testing um we already talked about our path pathfinder play test a bunch and with that I think that was a situation where in hindsight, you got clear on what you were testing, like we talked about. But I think at the beginning, there could have been more. And you didn't know what you didn't know about how your players were going to react, how much time they were going to invest, um, just kind of the approach and motivation they were going to have. But now if you decide to play test another system in the future, you have a lot of great information uh, about how to present it. And how to dive into that, like the example of giving pre-generated characters. Oh, you were asking for us to learn a lot diving into that playtest. Like character creation is a whole big thing. Actually playing the game is a whole big thing. Combat mechanics are a whole big thing. So there was a there was a lot to ask of your players. So and of yourself, you know, in trying to juggle it all. So if you had 
taken a step back and made it a little easier on yourself and on everybody else, then I think that play test would have gone better. Um, but again, it's all about perspective. We learned what we needed to learn. It was successful, even though it was a flop. It's one thing to see if this system jives with your table, which Pathfinder did not, but also how much support there is for that system by a wider community. And again, that is why 5th edition is so successful. Like there are so many content creators, YouTube videos, TikTokers, blogs, forums to figure out and explain the rules in a digestible way. Whereas with Pathfinder, I was excited going in and what I kept hearing like and reading comments from is, oh my gosh, you have this three action economy. It's so clean. It's so easy to pick up. It's so easy to learn. There's all these options that you can have. And when it came to actually play testing, that wasn't my experience. And actually, even when I asked the question like, hey, my players got stuck in this fight because of this reason, I was basically told like, just don't GM that way. So I didn't get a lot of support from the Pathfinder community that I gleaned. That doesn't mean that the support isn't there, but it might be harder to find. And it was kind of an echo chamber of community members praising the same things about the system. And because again, it's a smaller game. So it's a smaller community. So they have their own colloquialisms and shorthands for, for little things that as a newcomer, I didn't really understand. And so that was part of the learning process too, is sometimes you can only play a game to the amount that you're supported by the other people who play that game. And of course, for smaller systems, it's going to be a lot harder to get that kind of support. That brings up a good point too. If you're if you're testing something like a new system that you'd really like to share with a new group of people or bringing in a new mechanic to your game that your players may or may not be on board with, you have to be an ambassador of that thing whatever it is. So you have to be willing to be diplomatic and welcoming and helpful in the way that you present it. You need to be patient and take the time to answer questions and make it make the ease of entry as as comfortable as possible so people feel like they can become a part of it. And in terms of controlled experience, you know, it was a very limited time. You looked at Pathfinder. I don't know how many communities you actually dove into because, you know, there's some D&D subreddits that are really cranky and there are some that are really great, you know, and it just kind of, it, they just, all of these online communities find their own culture. So if you're a part of a Pathfinder community, that's amazing and welcoming and helpful. That's spectacular. You know, share, make sure you share that with out in the world and, you know, and, and bring people in if you have a positive community, if you're part of a community that's a little bit more exclusive, then just understand that not as many people are going to be attracted to it because it is like learning a whole new language. And when, when someone's brain is cluttered with what they already know, even if they're willing to let go of that, we went into Pathfinder willing to let go of what we knew from D&D, but also what we knew was D and D. So like the, like I said earlier on, the only thing that we can reference is what we know. So, so you need to help people bridge that gap of the understanding that they have to understanding the thing that you're in love with. And if you get too snooty about it, you know, and you, and you're not willing to be patient and take the time to help them understand, then you're not going to have more people playing that game. You know, you have to be an ambassador of the thing you're advocating for. 
All right. So we had two, two big ones, um, two, two bigger play tests that we've both been involved in lately. So we'll, we'll do the one that's been quite the roller coaster ride so far. And Sean, I will let you, I know you have much to say about the one D and D play test packets or whatever it is now sixth edition 2024 whatever uh, that see that there's a problem right there the fact that they're they're trying to pick a name that the community is like mm, no you know so i don't even know what it's called anymore so uh yeah so take it away so one of the things that we've been very much championing through today's episode has been starting simple and not trying to play test too many things at once when we got the first one D&D playtest packet of character origins, which was backgrounds and uh, species, to me, that was a wonderful packet because there were a few things that you were testing, but not too much. And you could build a character at any level and get an idea of how the new species design and the new background feats fit into your character build. The reason that that worked so well with technically a lot of content, it was like an 11 page packet. There were a lot of options to choose from was because in the grand scheme of 5e's gameplay, species and background feats are little things. So there were a lot of options, but it had relatively little impact. So you could it was easier to see the third fourth order consequences of these little changes like dwarves having tremor sense or any character getting to start with a feat now when you got into the class design is when the cracks in the armor started to show up and the reason was because 5e is built with these roles in mind of having a damage dealer uh, a tank character a controller and they started by clumping together the new classes and we already knew that the new class design was going to be superior to the 2014 core class design so when we were given rogue bard and ranger as the first three classes to play with there was no way to test like what the different roles would look like <laughs> so there was only you're gonna play a good ranger maybe next to a worse wizard a worse cleric and a worse fighter than we were gonna get later on in one dnd so already there is this weird content balance problem but what we noticed as we tried to keep up with the playtest panel discussions is that at one point with playtest packet five, they just decided to start going ham on these playtest packets. Like there were so many subclasses and new class features to playtest. There was no way to actually playtest it all in order to be able to run a game where we could control for variables. There was no way we could see what these classes felt like at different levels and how they interacted with each other. And it's because they have a deadline of 2024. It's, again, a messaging thing of 2024 is D&D's 50th anniversary. So we need a big flagship product to release then. So when the surveys come out relative to when they release the playtests, there's no way you can actually playtest all the content to give comprehensive survey feedback. Pretty much what anyone can do is just kind of have a gut reaction to some of it and then send out their gut reactions and then wizards will do with that as they may this is really interesting so i i had the question 
before you start talking, because I knew what rant you were going to go on, of uh, <laughs> how could they have done it differently? Because they are in a time crunch. So there was a point where I think they, I think they wanted to release the information in this, you know, gentler trickle. And then with the OGL stuff, things got a little bogged down and they got slowed down and then they had, they're just cramming stuff on the back end. So they had a time crunch. They also have this challenge of a very fanatical fan base that is comparing every minute detail to what they already know. They're comparing the monk of 2024 to 2014 and it's this very intense scrutiny on every little detail so those those two factors create a challenge that I don't know that I have an answer to but as I was thinking about it uh it's kind of interesting because our other example for comparison is distal RPG, which Michael, who's been on this podcast before, has been playtesting. And I've been privileged enough to be a part of it from pretty much the pretty early on in him playtesting and developing this. Um, and you can find uh, you can find the playtest. It is available online in its early stages. Uh, really beautiful document. Um, it's very very well done. Um, and I've really been enjoying this system. And he has, I have gone through a play test with his material much faster than the one D&D material was released. And I'm trying to think of what the difference was. So how did he release the same, basically released to me the same and, and you know, and, and the one other person we've been play testing with, and you got to sit in on one as well. How did he release the same amount of material to us if not more, because it's a new newer system and have it not be as overwhelming as the one D&D part of it is. And I think I think a big part of it is the comparison because I have nothing really to compare. I'm not comparing monk to monk. You know, he has martial classes and spellcaster classes, but they're not they're not D&D. So it, they're, they're unique and different. So that kind of frees my mind a little bit. I'm not trying to make this minute comparison of this like very specific mechanic. Um, but the other thing that I feel like helped is every time I showed up to a play test, he had a very specific thing that he was looking to test. So I remember one time it was darkness, just how darkness affected play. So that kind of focused in the combat, just like we did with facing. But to do that, he said, bring, make this type of character to bring to combat. So it was like we were we were playing around with the classes and those were all new at the same time that we were testing a very specific mechanic. So even though he was hitting a lot of things at the same time, he was doing it in a way that didn't feel overwhelming as a player in the game. And I just find it so interesting as you were talking about the 1D&D, just how different those two experiences felt, even though it was the same amount of information that was being processed every time. So I don't know. And maybe there was a novelty as well, because again, it, it, back to that comparison thing, I wasn't like, oh, do I like this monk better than another monk? It was just like, oh, I get to play a jester. I wonder what this is going to be like. Or I get to play, oh, I love the ferryman class. That one's my favorite. And that, you know, speaking of death mechanics, he's got some really unique and interesting death mechanics in there that are worth checking out. And I, I just, I really enjoy 
that class, but I learned how to play that class by having, by going into play tests that were like, all right, we're working on darkness or this time I'm going to try to kill you. Cause I want to see how the death mechanics work, you know, that type of thing. I want to go off on a tangent for a second, just because the life path tables that Michael developed for distal is the best, like, character backstory generation mechanic I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot of RPGs. And I think the reason is because a lot of RPGs try to be too specific. So like if you even look at the tables for backgrounds in uh, the 2014 Player's Handbook, it's like they're so specific that there's no room for the imagination. But Michael found that golden balance of being specific enough that I can imagine without being so specific that it's boxing my character in. So just from a straight up design standpoint, it's brilliant. When he presented that to us, speaking of the various ways you could do a play test, he literally just like texted us. Like here's all the information about the the table that I'm thinking about doing. And it was literally just in a text thread, like a chat. And we were able to play with it, you know, because it was kind of a simpler mechanic, but we didn't have to get together to do it. It was something we could play with. Um, but just to give people a reference. So the the framework of the background is I grew up blank and then you you roll on a table to fill in that blank. Um, and my days were spent blank. I became a blank uh, the day I blank. So you just, you roll and you end up with, like you said, this very not too tight, not too loose description. So I happen to have uh, my my character sheets nearby. So one of them that I ended up rolling uh, and I, I kind of had an idea in my head of what I wanted this character to be, like a little bit of like a feeling tone. And then what was really cool was the background just gave me fuel for that thing I was already trying to do rather than hindering it or making me change it, it, it fueled it. So the background that I rolled was I grew up on a battlefield and my days were spent tending my garden. I became a villain the day I slew a mighty beast. And there's so much room for ambiguity in there. Even like, what does villain mean? Because you can, you can feel like a villain without being one. Um, or you can just out and out be, you know, maybe it's a villain, like a wanted person, but you're not a bad person. You know, like there's so much room for interpretation. So here's another one. I grew up destined for greatness and my days were spent solving mysteries. I became a hero the day I was stranded in the wilderness. There's so much. You can take that story in so many different directions. It's not giving a reason for why. And I think that's why. That's it. It's not giving a reason for why these things happen. It's not telling me why I was stranded in the universe. I get to come up with that. It's not telling me why I'm a hero. I don't know what happened in the wilderness, you know? So it just like, it gives you just enough banks to the river that you, it sparks your imagination and, and just, it feels like the stories start to fall into place. And it also, and maybe this is just me, but that whole like tropey, backstory thing where every story has been told before it kind of takes away that pressure of trying to come up with something that doesn't feel like every you know backstory you've ever heard of before you know it just it kind of opens the door for you to get a little creative for yourself 
Yeah, going back to D&D, that's why I love that I started with modules, because rather than trying to pressure myself to create my own custom world or my own plot threads that I hope my players wouldn't get bored of, I would just play the the module. And if something seemed kind of silly or kind of out of the blue, it gave me something else to blame. <laughs> so I could be like, it's part of the book. Sorry, you guys. Like, let's have a conversation about solving this together. So in the same way, I love having tables like that. Not that I want to blame the table or anything, but like you said, it takes the pressure off. Oh, and one other thing about the table. So the, the tables are set up really neat because they're actually how you, you kind of get your equipment and gold too. It's it's connected to it. And um, obviously just like D&D, you know, it's optional. So you could just pick off the table if you wanted to. Like I remember I rolled one time and just the equipment that the combination of stuff gave me, it, it just... It, it didn't, I was really lacking. I wasn't able to get what I wanted. And Michael was just like, just pick something else then. So, I mean, it's not limited, you know, you could still swap stuff out, but what it does do is it, um, at the same time that it's giving you a backstory, it also gives you a balanced equipment set and not just equipment. It also gives you like contacts is one of the other things. So depending on what you roll, you get a combination of gold, low value equipment, high value equipment, contacts and then there might be one other uh more intangible resource that you get but i think resources would be a better word um but it's all kind of balanced out um the way that it's distributed in the table um just really really fun and it's fun to do it brings in this elements of luck but not in any kind of way that limits your character so to go back to one dnd because you asked the question why does one feel different than the other there are some differences between Distal and 1D&D that I would like to point out. The first being level span. So one of the things that I said that made 1D&D so overwhelming is you're trying to give feedback. Like this last packet was five classes with four subclasses each. So already you're talking about 20 different possible character builds at base, not even going into little decisions from levels one to 20. Distal at least when I first saw it was more like levels one through five. I believe it's been fleshed out to more like one through 12. That is a much tighter level range that is far easier to play test and give feedback about. So at the session I was invited to, we had level three characters and by its nature, 5e system at level three has much tighter mechanics and it's easier to see how little changes make a big difference. If you're playing level 15 characters, there's just way more going on. What I would have done if I were the D&D the &D design team is I would have released one class from each class group in the second UA. So I would have started with fighter, rogue, wizard, and cleric, the four iconic classes to give players an idea of what some of the changes were going to look like, but not be so locked into like one role that you have the maximum possible scenarios you can play out because it's a balanced party. And then you get an idea of what class groups look like because that was still when they were doing like the warrior, mage, expert kind of thing. And those also tend to be the simpler classes. So ranger, druid, monk, 
there is just so much complexity going on. So what that would have allowed you to do is not only see some of the design differences they've made, but also really let you get to test out the rules glossary, which was the most overwhelming thing. There were so many changes to just the basic rules everyone is familiar with on top of classes that you wouldn't really put together for a balanced party. The other thing I like about that method is the fact that you start by starting with the simpler ones, you're kind of acclimating people to the format of the playtest packet. And I know it changed, you know, but we're kind of we you're getting we're getting into a little bit of a groove, understanding the playtest packets, kind of getting the vibe for how they were setting up the new classes. So you start with less information while the formatting is still super new and the experience is new. And then you increase the complexity as people's comfort levels go up. So, but yeah, they, by doing, I don't, I don't know what they were thinking, but it doesn't feel like it was a very organized process. Um, and now obviously what that doesn't leave space for is the fact that they kind of, cause then they, they make changes, you know, they, they played with some stuff with monk and then they rolled it back a little bit and they played with some stuff with Bard and then rolled it back. Um, but yeah, I think, I think with a, a more integrated planned approach to the release, they could have created a better experience that the, their community could have kept up with. And then we could have been more helpful because there's no way that these surveys are actually, you would have to have D&D be your full-time job to be able to play 40 hours a week to really test all of the different pieces. So you end up with a whole lot of people just talking about what they like and don't like without actually implementing it, which is dangerous because now you just have people with their full cups and clouded minds that have already made a decision about something and they haven't had the experience to actually test it out. And and all you're getting is opinions, not actual information. Well, and also more absolute judgments. So opinions aren't bad as long as there's kind of, I don't know, like a nuance to them or like, you know, I like this because blank. Watching one of the 1D&D announcements with a live stream with a comment section, it was so predictable it was like did they nerf something boo did they make something more powerful yeah like there wasn't any conversation about oh if you make this more powerful you know that takes away from this other option that you could select the the danger of having surveys is you're only capturing a loud minority rather than what's going to make your game most accessible for most other people like that ease of entry you were talking about yeah, and I never even did the surveys because they were so long. I didn't like I have a job and a kid and I didn't have time for all of that. I may have done one of them and then was just and then when you layer in all of the information that they were trying to get you to test and it was just like I can't I can't give an accurate answer of this. So now you have the people you have a, a population of people that care that can't just don't have the time to invest in in doing so they just don't answer because they know they don't have full answers so now that reduces your survey results to the two extremes the people that are just loud and haven't you know they just have their set opinion and they just want to squawk about it and then the people that are you know and obviously this is these are 
people that are, are really good to listen to are the people that have um the time to to actually play test and dissect it like the youtubers that have turned this into a job and do have the time it is actually their profession to sit down and comb through this stuff but for the average person it was just too much so they didn't get my opinion because it was there was no way that I could go through all of that there's also a trust component um I know that a lot of people have very loudly said that they don't trust that if they fill out the survey that the company is going to take their feedback seriously. I'm more concerned about how they're interpreting things. Oftentimes I compliment Jeremy Crawford. I think he's a very smart person and I really like his game design and his philosophy and stuff. One thing he said that made me raise an eyebrow is he was talking about the barbarian feedback from 1D&D and how sometimes when someone says how they overall feel, that's not how they actually feel. Because for the Barbarian, the overall satisfaction was kind of more toward like 60 and 70%, which is like, eh. But, you know, each individual feature was highly satisfied. So Barbarian must be good overall. And what a lot of us listening to that announcement said was, well, no, just because we like the individual features doesn't mean we also don't think that there are some features that are missing. So when we're saying we don't like it overall, it's because we like what you gave us, but we want more <laughs> or we want a different combination or something like that. So it, it just, there was a lot of displays of like, I don't know, statistical interpretation is a science and an art form. <laughs> and so part of a playtest process is the trust that when you playtest it, the the feedback will be interpreted in a helpful way. And if you're demonstrating that you're not listening to the feedback in a helpful way, it makes it hard to want to give feedback, which kind of destroys the purpose of a play test. So I guess that would be another thing to say if you're pl even play testing at your own table is, are you easy to give feedback to? And do your players trust that if they give you some sort of critique that you're not going to make them feel bad about giving you a critique. And I mean, I think that's good advice even beyond playtesting, but especially playtesting when it's still kind of up in the air how things are going to go. Yeah, and that comes back to communication, like we talked about in the beginning. It's just you need to, if you really, really want to have an amazing table, you have to become a master of communication. And, and being able to talk to people in tense situations and, you know, come at it with humility and confidence, which is a, a very difficult balance to strike and um, not to let your head get too big. But I think you do a really good job of that. You, you kind of just matter of factly present. This is a thing I'm testing. I don't know how far it's going to go or how well it's going to work. I think it's kind of cool. So I thought we'd try it out. Please give it a chance, you know, and then you're also willing on the other side to say, you know, here's what, what I think went well, here's where I think I could have done better. You know, what do you guys think? And it creates the, the opening for honest communication. Um, and then we've mentioned the four agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. Uh, you do a good job of genuinely not taking things personally um you you have kind of, and that's a, that's a hard that is a hard thing you are a unique person in your ability to kind of step back from situations 
and and look objectively at stuff I, I mean we all we all view the world through our own lens and of course we want to we want people to like us we want to do a good job and and it can be hard not to get sucked into caring so much about that that you make it hard for people to talk to you um but that's you know practicing not taking things personally and getting curious about what happens you know like i know you're you're definitely a little frustrated after the pathfinder uh playtest but as you you worked your way through it and as you talked it out and got feedback from everybody because of the mindset of curiosity you were really just trying to to unravel this puzzle this gordian's knot of why why it didn't work and then in the end it was a really positive experience because you learned a lot from it because you came from curiosity now if you had gone into that and you'd just been ticked off that you know this person wasn't as prepared as you wanted and the pathfinder book is too big and and it was all about pointing fingers in a lot of different directions then we would have learned nothing and we all probably would have been really upset with each other at the end of it but it was it was that curiosity mindset of just like I want to figure this out so we can all have a good time what is going on here you know so like there's there's a frustration but it's directed at the fact that you want everybody to have fun and we're not and what's going on like what 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 is that you know and it's that that in that persistence in figuring out how to make things better um, without blaming any one person or thing that creates a solid play test and a, a solid table experience. Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Our theme song, The Lounge, is brought to you by Fesleyan Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fesleyanstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmorepodcasts.com. Last but not least, to support this podcast, make sure to drop a five-star review in your app of choice. It's a little thing that goes a long way. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now. Well, Grimton, Melinda and Ulrich are gone. We're in a new unfamiliar land of Kolgafir. What's our first move? Polaris, I'm not too certain, but I did hear Fishbelly talking about something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the Warlord's half-sister in a meeting. Yeah, that's about the only lead we have so far. We haven't been here long. Might be worth checking out. Seems like a plan to me. Join us as our party explores an unforgiving region of the cusp and allies with new party members in Arc 3 of Advantage a 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons audio drama focused on storytelling and character development in the Darkmoor Podcast Network. Find us in your podcast app.